Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, we continue learning about God's panorama of creation from Dr. Carl Baugh, and Jerry Tyson has a Bible in the News Report. The battle lines have been drawn. Creation versus evolution. Evolution asks us to believe the unbelievable, while creation is portrayed as a myth. Dr. Carl Baugh in his book Panorama of Creation scientifically proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that special creation is the only scientific explanation for man's existence on this planet. This updated edition includes a new chapter that details how dinosaurs were a vital part of God's creation and examines what the Jurassic Park movie series got right and wrong. Let's listen in on James Collins and Dr. Carl Baugh as they continue to look at God's panorama of creation. The Bible says in Genesis 2-5, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. Then the Bible continues in Genesis 2-6, But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. The clear teaching of the Word of God is that the earth was different before Noah's flood. Joining me in the studio today to talk about the earth before the flood is Dr. Carl Ball. Dr. Ball is the founder and director of the Creation Evidence Museum in Glen Rose, Texas. Dr. Ball is a lecturer, and he has spoken on television, radio, schools, churches, and all around the world. And he stands firmly against the theory of evolution and for the biblical account of creation. Beacon Street Press has just published an updated edition of Dr. Baugh's fantastic book, Panorama of Creation. The new edition includes a new chapter that explores fact versus fiction about dinosaurs. Specifically, it looks at the science behind the Jurassic Park movies. Today, we're going to talk about the world before the flood and dinosaurs. Dr. Ball, welcome back. Thanks for being on the program with me again. It is always a pleasure to be on the program, and especially today to talk about this little book. It's amazing how many facts are here that the average Christian family or the Christian educators need, even scientists need. But the book is written in layman's terminology so that you can just pick it up and read it and fully understand it. You mentioned the world before the flood. Now, I've lectured in 22 different countries, and sooner or later in each of these countries where they're on radio, television, or live audiences, I get around to the world before the flood. I hold patents on the world's first hyperbaric biosphere. We have built at Glen Rose, Texas, a first seven-foot demonstration of the world's first hyperbaric biosphere in which we compress the atmospheric pressure because we know it was greater in the past for reasons of physics. We know there was higher oxygen ratio. We know the carbon dioxide ratio was slightly higher. We know certain factors and we put those to the test. And astoundingly, after introducing various experiments in the prototype biosphere, we were able to triple the adult lifespan of fruit flies. Now, even Harvard has not done that without special exotic food. But we just use regular nutrients, but we introduce these fruit flies into what we consider to be the physical constraints of the pre-flood world. And in the second generation, we triple the adult lifespan of fruit flies. But that's not all. 
One amazing thing is that we introduce copperheads and rattlesnakes. Now, I'm not a snake handler. <laughs> I don't know anyone identified with Southwest Radio Ministries that might be a snake handler. So after four weeks in the biosphere, the snakes being in the biosphere, we had a guest, Professor Amy Clark, University of Illinois, 40 years tenured professor, world-class scholar in fluid dynamics. And so he looked at me and he said, why don't you milk the snakes? And I said, Professor, it's too early. I had said that in the third generation, we should be able to see some difference in the vena of the snakes. But I said, we've just had them in four weeks. And why don't I milk them? Secondly, because I don't milk snakes. (laughs) (laughs) Do that, no, sir. But we brought in Robert Popperwell, PhD, a specialist in snake handling, brought in a friend of mine, Robert Summers, and under controlled conditions, they milked the snakes. We had the control experiment 45 miles away. So we had venom from the controlled experiments, and we had venom from the biospheric snakes that had been in the pre-flood atmosphere for just four weeks. We drove that up to an independent lab in Dallas. Next week, they called me from the lab, and they said, you're going to need to come up and see this. So Emmy Clark and I drove back up to Dallas. They said, look, here is, as expected, the micrographs of the control group. And as expected, the venom is all gnarled, both for the copperheads and the rattlesnakes, a chedrodon, contortrix, and a grotilus. Both of them, as you can see, the venom is all gnarled and twisted around. That's part of the necrosis-forming factor that makes them toxic. But they said, this is what really surprised us. They showed us the micrographs of each of the type snakes from the biosphere. And to our amazement, the snake venom was completely orchestrated without the dangling loose necrose-inducing ends and frays. That's astounding. So they said, we want to take it further. They said, we want to put two or three PhDs on a special project. So they ran electrophoresis test, and they found that simply by having the comparison of the control to the biosphere, we had increased certain protein expressions. We had diminished certain protein expressions. We had eliminated certain protein expressions, but here's what they said we must publish on. Just by having, and I hope the audience is really listening at this moment, just by having these creatures in the context we call the pre-flood world in this experiment at the museum, proteins were introduced that were not seen in the control group which means the information had to already be in the genetic function and archive of the system, which means that when you find exotic things happening in nature, it's not evolution in progress. It is not a naturalistic thing that's coming about because evolution is proceeding and we're evolving to a higher organism. Not the case at all. Any change is simply a rewriting of an introduction, an inducing factor, bringing out what's already in the genetic code. So in this little book, that those basic parameters 
are introduced, you need a copy of this book. Genesis 1-7 speaks of God making a firmament and dividing the waters above and below the firmament. And that verse talks about and kind of helps us to understand how the world was different in a pre-flood era. So tell me how that firmament or that canopy would have affected the conditions on the earth before the flood. It would have been like a greenhouse. We would have had larger plants and animals, correct? Absolutely. Not only would what we know as being deleterious or uh, harmful poisons like the snake venom, but plants and other factors would have introduced a perfectly orchestrated creation. For instance, today we have lycopsid club mosses that grow to about 18 inches in stature. But in the fossil record, which is evidence of the pre-flood world and its destruction in the time of the worldwide flood, in the fossil record, those same plants called lepidodendron grew up to 120 feet in stature. Now that's astounding. And in the fossil record, things like dinosaurs, those reptiles, could grow as long as they lived and could grow to be like 110, 12, 15 feet in length and raise their heads 70 feet in the air. So in that pre-flood world, we had more optimal atmospheric conditions. We had the increase of atmospheric pressure. We had the elevation of oxygen. We had the slight elevation of carbon dioxide, but especially the firmament. In the little book, Panorama of Creation, I discuss the Hebrew word rakia, and it is the King James Bible that correctly translates rakia as firmament, because the Hebrew word itself mandates that it was compressed, crystalline, solid in nature. And many of the newer translations of the Bible and many well-intentioned theologians translate rakia as the expanse of space. Well, the expanse of space was already introduced in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So here, in verse number 6, when we have this special canopy introduced, it was of a special construct after the basic factors of the creation. And you've mentioned it correctly. It was a tangible crystalline firmament. We know about 11 miles above the earth there is a heat sink, and then it warms up again beyond that, and we know that is the optimal area 10 to 11 miles above the earth. Very, very thin, not a thick construct, probably no more than two centimeters thick, just very, very thin. What difference would that have made? Oh, it would have made a world of difference. First of all, it would have eliminated most of the ultraviolet radiation. The ultraviolet radiation generates free radicals. It strikes oxygen, and it rids oxygen of an electron, but oxygen's very friendly, so it goes about forming other relationships. So it binds with all sorts of bizarre chemistry. Well, we need oxygen to breathe, and all the mammals need oxygen, and the plants need oxygen and carbon dioxide. All of those are disrupted because of free radicals. University of California at Los Angeles technical papers were introduced to say that today, because of our free radicalized atmosphere from ultraviolet radiation, 
Every cell in our body is assaulted up to 10,000 times a day because it is receiving oxygen that is radicalized, that is, has combined with bizarre chemistry due to the ultraviolet radiation striking. So in the world before the flood, we didn't have that factor. We also had greater atmospheric pressure. This permitted the dinosaurs to get oxygen fed to the deep cell tissue of their bodies. At Texas A&M University, I was introduced to Dr. William Fife. We ran experiments with him, my wife being the individual involved in the experiments. And in that chamber where they introduce additional atmospheric pressure, the deep cell tissue is detoxified of these free radicals. So in the world before the flood, we had these wonderful, wonderful parameters that would have permitted man, even after the fall, even in a sinful condition, would have permitted man to live a long time. But this little book introduces something else, Panorama of Creation. In it, I introduce the superior characteristics that man had before the flood. For instance, number one is conceptual analysis. Adam gave names to all cattle and of the fowl of the air and every beast of the field, according to Genesis chapter 1 and chapters 2 and 3, as we have the continuation of the description of Adam. So he had an ability to conceptualize anything he approached. Number two is comparative observation. He gave names to all cattle and to every beast. He compared them and never duplicated himself. And then observational articulation. It names to all the cattle. Synergistic language. He wrote the first poem. And in the Hebrew, it is in poem structure. And Adam said, and in poetic structure, she's now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. In the Hebrew poetry, the second reiteration of a concept enhances that iteration. There's domestic orientation, speech anatomy, time perspective, environmental cultivation, number 13, 23 is engineering develop. Wow, he had the ability in the pre-flood world to engineer and to be creative himself. Number 31 is systematic education. Tubal Cain was an instructor of every artificer. Attire awareness, comparative justice. Number 37, logistic reasoning. It goes on. 43, historical perspective. 48, origins inquisition. Where did I come from? 55, social influence. Number 56, I closed with 56 in the book because according to Hebrew tradition, Adam and Eve had 56 children. Now, the Bible doesn't state that, and we have to take into account other factors, but there's certainly indication that they were very prolific. And number 56 is positive, purposeful motivation. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him to do, so did he. All and commanded he followed in purposeful motivation. To understand what we could be, should be, have been, and what man in the millennium will be again, you need the book Panorama of Creation. Before the flood, man was encased in a perfect environment, paradise. And that also helps explain the mechanisms of Noah's flood. But you mentioned their Bible prophecy. We will see the canopy again when Christ returns, won't we? Yes, in the book, 
the anticipation. In the ninth chapter of the book of Isaiah, there's the introduction of a context that is carried throughout the book of Isaiah and carried throughout Revelation. The lamb and the lion will lie together, that is the ox and the lamb and the lion lie together. A child will play on the den of the asp and the cockatrice. Now, wait a minute. The asp and the cockatrice are the most poisonous, venomous snakes we know anything about. Mm -hmm. Yet, in the millennium, there will be a restoration of these conditions, even with a broken earth, and our earth is broken and will ultimately need to be completely restored. But for a thousand literal millennial years, the earth will be temporarily restored, And an old man will live out his days fully. And a child that has a genetic deficiency will still live to be a hundred years of age. And every man will sit under his own vine tree. Now, I like that statement, vine tree. (laughs) Now, the vines today grow to be two or three feet tall. And sometime they have thorns on them, but that's going to be changed in the future. But here... Can you imagine a rose tree? It's not just a rose vine or a rose bush, but you'll be able to sit under a rose tree. I work in the fossil record. I dig dinosaurs. We find evidence that all life forms were larger in the past. Flowers bloomed to be brighter in color. Some of that color is still retained after 4,300 years since the time of Noah's flood when all of that was encapsulated, not millions of years. All of these millions of years are simply references of a secular mindset. The truth in this little book is revealed as being consistent with the Word of God. Well, let's talk about dinosaurs. You mentioned dinosaurs, and we have a new section in the updated version of Panorama of Creation that looks at the fact and fiction in the Jurassic Park movies. Contrary to evolution, isn't it true that man walked with dinosaurs? Oh, yes. In fact, the reason I built the Creation Evidence Museum at Glen Rose, Texas, was because of the controversy. I had read at that point in time when I went to Glen Rose, I still held to an old age reference of time and put the dinosaurs in a gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 that cannot be substantiated scripturally or factually. I was completing the master's degree in archaeology. I went to Glen Rose, was designed by my mentor, Dr. Clifford Wilson, in excavation. And to my absolute surprise, after excavating 19 dinosaur footprints, removing the overburden, we found a trail of 16 and a half inch human footprints. At the Creation Evidence Museum, we have some of the footprints on display in the museum under special cover because the evolutionists themselves have destroyed some of the tracks and have threatened to destroy more. So we have full security. But if you will visit the Creation Evidence Museum in Glen Rose, Texas, you'll see the Delk print where an 11 and a half inch human footprint, all five toes, all features of the human foot, is intruded by an Acrocanthosaurus dinosaur track, and they were made within minutes or at the most hours of each other because some of the mud compressed by the human track is pushed up into the track by the dinosaur print. Genesis describes all of the creation together. The book of Job chapter 40 states clearly, 
God made behemoth with man. Chapter 40, verse 15. Behold now, behemoth, the dinosaur which I made with thee. The book is Panorama of Creation, and it is available in a brand new edition from Beacon Street Press with a new section on dinosaurs. You can get a copy of the book by calling 1-800-652-1144, or you can order online at swrc.com. Dr. Ball, it has been a pleasure. I have all your books, and I have followed your ministry for years. It was an honor to have you in the studio with me today. The honor is absolutely mine, and I'm so pleased that you personally, like many in this audience, have responded to the truth of God's Word, and it washes our minds clear of guilt in the Christian conscience not to identify with the Big Bang evolutionary theory, but to realize there is scientific evidence supporting the Bible, and recent creation. Amen. Get a copy of the complete two-day conversation with Dr. Carl Ball by calling 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. And make sure you get Dr. Carl Ball's newly updated book, Panorama of Creation. This updated edition includes a new chapter that details how dinosaurs were a vital part of God's creation and examines what the Jurassic Park movie series got right and wrong. Get your copy for a gift of $20 or more by calling 1-800-652-1144. You can always order online, swrc.com. That's swrc.com. Here is Jerry Tyson. There are some issues that refuse to go away. Joe Biden has brought one of them to the forefront of consideration. I assume most SWRC regulars are not Catholic, so this portion of the abortion debate might not be something you have heard. Coming from Catholic Vote Newsfeed, the nation's second Catholic president blasted a new pro-life law on Wednesday that banned most abortions in Texas. Joseph Biden Jr. said in a statement that the new state ban on abortions after six weeks will significantly impair women's access to the health care they need, especially for communities of color and individuals with low incomes. Mr. Biden also objected that Senate Bill 8 which Republican Governor Greg Abbott signed in May, allows pro-life advocates to sue any abortion providers or individuals who aid or abet a woman in violating the ban. My administration is deeply committed to the constitutional right established in Roe v. Wade nearly five decades ago and will defend and protect that right, Biden added clarifying that he supports abortion on demand. Brian Birch is president of the CatholicVote.org, and he responded that the Texas law should be cause for celebration on such a historic day, especially among Catholics like Biden, who claim to be devout. Protecting innocent unborn life is foundational to building a civilization of love, Birch said. For this reason, it is also beyond shameful to see a Catholic president of the United States attack this effort to protect children and mothers in Texas. 
Catholics are called to defend the weakest and most vulnerable. Once again, Biden betrays his faith. Birch referenced the bill's reputation as the heartbeat law because a baby already has a heartbeat and developing blood vessels, spinal cord, and brain at six weeks. He also noted that Texas legislators voted to invest $100 million to help mothers, including pregnancy centers, adoption agencies, and maternity homes in providing free services, including counseling, parenting help, diapers, formula, and job training to mothers who seek to keep their babies. Unfortunately, the notion of passing any law that makes it easier for women to keep their babies seems foreign to Biden's stance of presenting himself as a devout Catholic while systematically promoting abortion on demand. And in spite of his stance, new polling has suggested that devout Catholics themselves do not support Biden, although Biden's press secretary, Jen Psaki, and the media describe him as a devout Catholic whenever the topic of abortion comes up. A new Pew survey reported that the majority of devout Catholic churchgoers favored Donald Trump over Biden in the last election. By contrast, Biden enjoyed majority support only among Catholics who did not attend Mass on a regular basis. In previous years, voters who frequently go to religious services, defined as those who attend at least monthly, were more likely to vote for the Republican candidate than the most recent presidential election, while less frequent attenders were more likely to back the Democrat, according to the Pew analysis. Even as he advocates for abortion on demand, the nation's second Catholic president enjoys flashing his rosary beads to world leaders and others whenever possible. But because of Biden's public pro-abortion stance, the U.S. bishops have also pondered denying Holy Communion to him until he repents of his position, which directly contradicts the perennial Catholic teaching that abortion is immoral in all circumstances. Biden's support among non-observant Catholics stands at odds with his own insistence when he's in Washington on attending Mass every Sunday at Georgetown's Holy Trinity Parish. Catholic Vote reported that the law had been cleared by the 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals and the U.S. Supreme Court, both of whom rejected emergency motions by abortion providers to block it. Clerics have complained that many women do not even know they're pregnant before six weeks, meaning the Texas law would stop most abortions in the state. But it remains to be seen if the law is executed in a way that has that effect. By enforcing itself through private lawsuits, the new law targets the deep pockets of the abortion industry itself rather than criminalizing or penalizing women seeking abortions in any way. This novelty allowed it to evade traditional enforcement-based arguments that abortion advocates have used to stop six-week bans in the past. Without going through all of the familiar arguments, the biblical standard of being chaste and not involved in sexual activity prior to marriage is still the gold standard for avoiding unwanted pregnancy. 
It is unfortunate that the culture of today is at odds with God and regards human life to be of no value. Be sure and get the book Panorama of Creation by Dr. Carl Baugh. Order today by calling 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.